Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and forgotten taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on this Thursday. And no, this is not CPAC, or in some levels, this is the real CPAC, the real conservative political action conference, our town town hall of people that actually understand what conservatism is, what it means, why it's important, and why we need to stay focused on it. Um, Obviously, this week you have the conference that is the ultimate political fentanyl and political heroin where people just dope up, sometimes probably literally, I think, but certainly figuratively speaking, uh, just get drunk on the vapid talking points. You have so many people speaking and organizing this event that are the antithesis of conservative values that are a defeat mechanism for what's going on. So, you know, you guys want to hear the real stuff, the real stuff, the real progress, what we're doing good, what we need more progress on, what we're going backwards on, what we hope to do. Because again, I didn't get into this business for the razzle-dazzle, for the soap opera. I got into it to actually do and pursue policies that I thought were right. And I thought as at least self-proclaimed conservatives, we all agreed to. Um, Just want to piggyback off that for a minute with the CPAC conference. I mean, the American Conservative Union Foundation, which is the you know part of the umbrella group that puts on the conference, they are as rabidly pro-jailbreak, pro-criminal as anything on the left. I mean, I challenge you to find one difference. You could look them up. Um, in this giant big tent, a trans conservative, this everyone's conservative. There's room for everything. There's the conservative case for entitlements, the conservative case for more foreign labor, the conservative case for everything. But what you are not allowed to have the view of is Reagan's view of crime at a time of record high drug trafficking, record high crime in some places, other places it's gradually going up. Almost everywhere the downward trajectory is being blocked when the pendulum has already swung too far the other way. And no one's allowed to point this out. So you have Alice John- Johnson, who's like the headline at CPAC. Again, I-, I bet you she'll wind up speaking at the Republican convention. And nobody is pointing out my point that, has she ever spoken out against cocaine trafficking and how many African-Americans are being killed by it? I mean, wouldn't you think someone who really repents would, would do that as just a basis? I don't know. Instead, she's advocating for more jailbreak of drug traffickers. By the way, you know, I was speaking with someone recently. They're talking about um, how one of these people let let out literally the next week was with the Colombian cartels doing a massive shipment of cocaine. This wasn't Alice Johnson. I mean, it was someone else. But and I was I said to myself, wow, I never would have read that. I never would have known that the same way there are so many egregious crimes that are committed by illegal aliens trace back to sanctuary policies, open border policies, but it's never said as such. It's the same thing with jailbreak. All these people that are let out, they're like, oh, this is amazing. It's win win. Crimes down. Don't worry. Um, We save money. They'll never talk about the victims. They'll never talk about when they reoffend. 
And there's actually downright an effort now to cover it up everywhere. Some of you might have seen in Chicago, the chief judge there put out this phony data that was now debunked, trying to show how their you know, bail reform uh, well, what wasn't increasing crime when in fact it was. But here's another story from the Washington Examiner, which by the way is a publication that really pushes jailbreak. But it's funny how, again, when the Democrats are doing this, you could point it out, but if Republicans join it, and you want to write against it, then somehow you're spiked. I mean, I know someone who was literally almost like threatened. You better not speak out against jailbreak anymore. Uh, this is, and, and it wasn't a Soros person. It was a so-called conservative. But this is from the Washington Examiner. Wh whistleblowers are accusing the police department in D.C. of improperly reporting crime. According to two Metropolitan Police Department officers, Police Sergeant Charlotte Dijal and Officer T Tabitha Knight, the, uh, the department is purposely, purposefully manipulating crime reports to make the nation's capital appear safer. Local media obtained new documentation relating to the officer's claim, citing two instances in which violent confrontations were allegedly downgraded from felonies to misdemeanors. So not only are they downgrading it in the actual justice process in the conviction level, they're actually in, downgrading it in the reporting level because they're getting everything they want now. I mean, Republicans agree, CPAC agrees, everyone, they're getting Trump to agree, everyone agrees with jailbreak, except for me. So they're getting what they want. But, but the one problem they're having is, well, the piper is going to be paid because the crime is going up. So they have to stifle any debt on that. One case involved a man slashing a woman's neck and face outside a liquor store after she asked him to buy water for her. According to the report, the woman was slashed with an unknown object, forcing her to be hospitalized instead of being categorized as assault with a dangerous weapon, which you would think a felony punishable with up to 10 years in prison. The incident was labeled as a simple assault, a misdemeanor punishable with up to six months in jail. Another case involved an incident between two men near Columbia Heights apartments in D.C. in which a suspect alleged, allegedly grabbed his boyfriend by the neck grabbed his boyfriend, what is this, a gay couple or something? I don't even know, and held a knife to his throat and as he yelled profanities, blank, you lied to me. Instead of being classified as aggravated assault, the crime was also downgraded to simple assault. Um, email communications also reportedly revealed police superiors ordered officers to designate the incidents with less severe titles. They show a copy of those correspondences. Um... The two officers gave public tes testimony on the matter to D.C.'s Council's Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety in mid-January. Um, I'm a sergeant for the Metropolitan Police Department, and I'm a whistleblower. D.C. Police Sergeant Charlotte Dijau, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, said during the testimony, a lot of times the officers are afraid to come forth and speak up because of retaliation. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm, I'm not going to be silent, added Officer Knight. Good for them. Good for them. But folks, this is how to begin with, the system is so rigged against victims. I, I note this all the time, how even the worst crimes are designated as second or third degree because it's very, very hard to prove first degree. A lot of people ask me, well, I thought we lock up people for life for murder. Like, how come you have all these murderers out committing more murder, rape, mayhem, what's going on? 
And again, aside from the fact that they plead down and you have all the ways of getting out of it, but even initially, they're not charged with first degree. What people forget is that first degree versus second degree is not a matter of threat assessment, of a degree, a measure of how much of a public safety threat that guy is. It's a very technical thing. You have to somehow prove that the guy previously intended to do it. So in the case where you have that guy who attempted to rape a woman in a hospital bed, let out under New York's jailbreak, and then in February is accused of, last week actually, accused of charging a library security officer and repeatedly stabbing her to death, I mean, that's like really random, violent, you know, you would think that that's like first degree, but no, I mean, he, he was charged with second degree. I was actually telling a friend this earlier today, just an interesting observation. If anything, a good number of those charged with first degree are often not as bad as the second degree in terms of at least ubiquitous public safety threat. And here's what I mean by it. Like the typical cases, the, the law and order CSI movie cases where a guy plots an elaborate plot, it, it's usually very targeted. He has a beef with it. It's, it has to do with a girlfriend. It has to do with business. It has to do with who knows what. Uh, it's, uh, believe me, I'm not trying to downplay it and say the guy doesn't deserve the death penalty or life and be you know justice. But I'm saying in terms of public safety threat, it's often very targeted. It's not like that guy is mentally ill or psychotic, out of control. It's just you let him out. He's just going to be beating people up and robbing and murdering and raping. It was a very targeted thing. But those are usually the easiest cases to prove first degree premeditation. Whereas the street knockouts where you just beat someone up and the senseless beatings. Those are rarely, rarely charged with second degree much less convicted on that level and that's why they're out and doing it again and again and there is no effort no desire on the part of anyone to explore these loopholes and explore how we lock up people that we should all agree and again i'm not even talking about drugs now drugs are awesome drugs are amazing we love drugs yes we love drug traffickers i get it i'm, I'm talking about straight up murder and, and and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon we're not deterring that at all and here and and this is the, the these are some of the reasons why which brings me to something very important i wanted to talk about some of you might have seen yesterday the house passed a bill nearly unanimously to designate lynchings as hate crimes and make it a federal crime and subject to mandatories of um of 10 years in, in prison. So, obviously, the Democrats, you know, they, they love criminals, they let them out, even gun felons. You see that jailbreak trumps even their supposed hatred against guns, right? So, you know, what's the sudden thing? Obviously, it's all racial, it's all talking point, it's all an agitation, because they don't care about it. Now, under our system, well, what's a lynching? Often, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's hard to see how they're defining it, but what it usually is, is a group of people, usually multiples, get together and just violently kill someone. Well, I don't know. I mean, in my book, anyone who does that should get the death penalty. I don't care what race, the assailant, the victim, the mixture of the race. I mean, anyone doing that, 
should get the death penalty. So under our system, there's no need for specific stuff to start getting to thoughts and you know thought crimes. I mean, you kill someone, you kill someone. I mean, under their system, they let these people out after a year. I guess you need to, you know, you need something like this. Moreover, it's it's really a state issue. I mean, it's very hard to justify federalizing it because it's neither a ubiquitous problem. And again, I mean, where, where, when it happens, it's horrific. But I mean, how many times has it happened over the last generation? Well, at, le at least the way they're describing it and what their intent is with this, a traditional lynching that you would, you know, like what they did in the South in the, you know, 100 years ago, things like that, 80 years ago. Um, how often does that happen? And a lynching is a lynching. It's a very isolated. It's not like this national network. In other words, I, I was having this discussion with a friend of mine who works on anti-gang stuff, and he's a strong advocate for federal anti-gang legislation. And I was telling him how I'm very sympathetic, but I'm you know, trying to figure out, trying to get there intellectually, whether you know it warrants federal involvement. And his point was local police can't deal with it. All these networks are national and now international, and they're all interconnected. So, you know, again, you look at how insidious this is. It's not about justice for victims of lynching and violent crime, because the two things that are the that should be really federal federal anti-gang legislation and um and uh, all these criminal aliens let go. I mean, unbelievable. You look at the, at the you know, hundreds of murderers and thousands of rapists just in New York City let go and not given over to ICE. All these unbelievable stories. And that is emphatically a federal job. No urgency to, you, you know, it's funny, like when the political class wants something done, like, boom, it gets done unanimously. They, they send it to the president's desk. Now, the reason is very simple. This is just a BS talking point because the way they're defining lynching is it's just very rare these days. So it's they get a talking point, but it's not like it's going to increase the prison population because it's not going to apply to that many people. Whereas, you know, with the criminal aliens and the gangs, um, which would apply to a tremendous amount of people, but for good reason, they're not going to do. But I had this thought with this anti-lynching legislation that I said, and I was pushing some of my allies in the Senate to add an amendment when it comes over to the Senate now. I actually like what the Democrats did. Hey, they're finally on record as caring about victims of horrific, violent crimes, how people could be walking down the street and just get ripped to shreds. I'm glad that there's self-awareness of this problem now. And I'm glad that they're finally talking about mandatory minimums. Hey, I mean, I'm all for it. Again, I, I, something like this, is, it's, it's a state issue. It's, it's hard to justify how it's cross-state, like with immigration or gangs, but okay, whatever. None of us care about that anymore, the technicalities, so fine. You want mandatories, all right. But do you know what is common? All these knockouts, all these videos you see from New York City, just senseless beatings. I don't, to me, that's a lynching. Remember, I said this back when we had this case in my home state in Frederick, Maryland. We had the sheriff on a couple uh, months ago where this guy in front of his family, he was just, you know, at, 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 a, at a Frederick County uh, fair to enjoy the day. And a group of, of teenagers, uh, it must have been 20, he said 20 of them, just surrounded him. And one of them just knocked him out and killed him. Killed him. 
And I said that th there's got to be some sort of mandatories for predatory violence, this group violence. Now, they're not going to include it in this like hate crimes, but it needs to be. I think irrespective of the race and the motivation with that and who you are, I think for anyone, it is the most cowardly, disgusting thing. And it's, it's very hard. It needs to be deterred because what happens is it makes it impossible for the victim to fight back. Like the guy doing the knockout barely gets a punishment. And certainly the people, they're, they're basically enabling and sealing the guy's death, even though often they won't touch the guy. There's got to be a mandatory to deter that. And mandatories deter. That's, that's the little secret. Reagan was right. We dropped violent crime in this country by 65% because of tougher sentencing. Everyone always looks for retrospectively, what happens to the guy, does he get reformed? I don't care about that. What I do care about is the thousands of th upon thousands and particularly African-American uh, victims who would have been killed had we continued on that same trajectory from the 70s and the 80s. And instead we broke it and went backwards. That is the power of deterrent. The power of deterrent in the justice system. But right now, what are they going to get? And remember, we talked about those those kids at the at the Frederick Fair. Well, it turns out, as, as we predicted. They're only being charged as juveniles. I, I forgot what it even is. I don't even know if it's second degree murder, certainly not first degree. They'll get I, I mean, by the time the, the case gets adjudicated. It will be time served, time served. And that's the thing. There's just no deterrent. So like in, in their mind, the lynchings that I know they're referring to are, are fortunately very rare. I mean, even one is too many. But something that really should be part of the definition of a lynching. I'm all for that. We need anti-lynching legislation. But again, don't make it so narrow. Let's broaden it. I think they have the right idea. I agree with it. There needs to be a deterrent. But again, they're just trying to make a political talking point and they don't really care about victims. That's what's so disappointing here. But it's just funny how I, I've called for such legislation and on paper, it's almost like that's what they're doing. Technically, it wouldn't fit under and that's the problem. But, but I think that amendment needs to be added. You're talking about the power of deterrent. I want to mention something that's about to come out today or tomorrow. I'll give you a heads up. Senator Tom Cotton is introducing a bill to finally put our national virtue signaling and talking point about fentanyl into real legislation. You see, how many people are killed due to homicide or what? the FBI designates as a homicide. It's roughly about 16,000 a year. Usually about six, 7,000 are killed from shootings, a few thousand from stabbings, different deaths. 40,000 people die from fentanyl trafficking. From fentanyl trafficking. Why should that not be treated with the same severity, especially because of the out-of-control trajectory and the need to deter it. Okay, we're not talking about someone caught with possession. 
We're not talking about someone consuming it. We're talking about someone trafficking it, something that they know will kill someone. It's not even about a drug crisis, as I said. The fentanyl, you, you could say with the other drugs, it's like an addiction. With fentanyl, it's chemical warfare in one of two ways. They're either lacing it into like the powder drugs or, and this is really the, the threat now, they're selling them as, as regular pills. They look like, you know, they, it could be a tramadol or, you know, whatever other painkiller someone will often take. So they're not even necessarily addicted per se. But often because they're shut out from legitimate prescription market pain medication because of the government's malfeasance on that. Like with Virginia Krieger's daughter, an angel mom we had on the show. They go and someone says, hey, you know, take this for your pain, knowing full well that it's fentanyl and the person dies. Why isn't that murder? That's chemical warfare. That's murder. That's not drugs. Oh, you're locking people up too long, Daniel, for drugs. No, no, no. We're not talking about someone smoking marijuana. And that was always a myth. The whole incarceration for that. We are talking about you are killing someone. Right? Let, let, let's say someone goes, goes around and, you know, puts hemlock into food. Or they go around to kids or teenagers and sell like, and they're actually doing this, this, um, the synthetic marijuana that's laced with uh, rat poison um, that we see. Uh, Derek Maltz talks about this all the time. What do you call that stuff? The Scooby-Doo. They have these packages. They look like candy. So, I mean, that, that's murder. I mean, that's poisoning. That, that's chemical warfare. It's the same thing. Everyone's like, oh, we have a drug crisis. We're spending billions. We're doing everything we can to combat this except to address and deter the direct problem, right? Forget addiction. I'm not talking about addiction, treatments, eh, uh, the NGO, billions of dollars. What if you actually deterred the people doing this? Oh, Daniel, you can never stop drugs. Hey, I'm not trying to stop drugs. I'm not, I'm not going to attack the item. Just like uh, when you attack guns, it doesn't work. You lock up violent felons, including gun felons. Guess what? That doesn't work because you take them off the street. And then you deter those younger in the pipeline looking to get into criminality. That's the lesson of our history. Here's the deal. As Virginia told us, these two like young women, girls, sewer rats that sold her the stuff. They knew she was going to die because that was the whole thing. As she was dying, they took her ATM card. That was part of the point. They murdered her. One of them had a massive rap sheet, including being at the scene of someone else dying at her foot after she gave her the fentanyl. She was later caught for robbery. And what did she say? One got nothing. The, big, the, the, the main one got nothing. The lesser one got 30 days. There's no deterrent to people doing that. So Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton from, from uh, Arkansas, he is laying down a marker right here, right now, no way around it. A bill to codify the president's remarks into law. 20-year mandatory for fentanyl trafficking. 
If you have a prior serious conviction or you're an illegal alien caught doing this, life. And if we could prove, and I have to, again, I don't have the text with me, but it's something like this. You have to see how it's drafted. But if we could prove that you knowingly tried to kill someone with this, it makes it at least eligible for the death penalty. That's what the president said he wants. All of these people like, Daniel, I'm with the president, when really they're with the swamp. I mean, this is what I resent. It's like, I have to feel like I'm the stranger in this movement. Like, oh, Daniel, you're against Trump. Like, well, what do you mean? It's like, they say, oh, we're sick of the cokes. We're sick of the swamp. We're sick of these people. We're nationalists. I'm a national. I want Trump. Okay. And then the swamp gets to him and, and these people remain silent. So it's one directional pressure. He, you know, gets pressured into it. And then they're like, oh, that's Trump's position. Well, no, it's not. That's the swamp's position. I mean, this is the joke. The president bashed the cokes, and every cokehead is in the White House now, in the policy shop. They're running this stuff. They're everywhere. Behind CPAC. I mean, this is the swamp we were supposed to drain. Instead, they're draining the MAGA movement. This is Trump's view. This is codified in this bill, and it's time to, to put your money where your mouth is. If you don't want to pass this, oh, I don't want to lock up, then shut up. Then, 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 then stop spending billions of dollars on drug treatment. Okay, stop all this NGO stuff. Do you want to solve the problem or not? Deterrent is everything. Everything. Now, speaking of deterrent, I want to move on to illegal immigration. And there's been a lot going on. There's good news in the courts. There's bad news in the courts. There's good news in the administration. There's bad news in the, in the administration. It's kind of a mixed bag this week. And I would note that a lot of this reflects what we talk about with personnel. You see where the issue is more within the purview of someone who's good. We get good policies. So hence, Ken Cuccinelli really is into the denaturalization stuff. You might, might have seen they're forming a task force to denaturalize those who naturalized with fraud and really, you know, they were terrorists, gang members, sex offenders, because those are all things you have to disclose. So obviously, if you're a naturalized citizen, you become like an American and you can't be deported. But there is one asterisk in the sense that, yeah, we can't, you know, turn you into an alien, except if it turns out you naturalized through a lie, through fraud. Um. And it's something that we have not clamped down on. And it's truly very sad that you, you would think in a, in a world of 7.8 billion people, when there are so many good people around, right? There, there's a lot of people who will come and they're not going to hate America. They'll love America. They're not going to be sex offenders. They're not going to be gang members. They're not going to be drug traffickers. They're not going to be Sharia supremacists. They're not going to be spies for China. Right. You, you would think we should all agree that we don't take an elective policy of immigration and voluntarily bring in you know, bad people and make them citizens. And you would think at every level, um, at the admission level, at the LPR green card application level, and then at the final stage, you know, the final safeguard. Wait, you know, let's just make sure this person is, quote, in good character as we demanded since 1790. Um, before we go and and do something that, that will wind up being immutable. And it's just been political that until now they've refused to clamp down. So this is really good news. Now, like anything else, 
does it actually get implemented do the courts screw with it and then we don't push back against the courts whatever but that is a that is a good good policy um and and again that has the fingerprints of ken cuccinelli all over it then you got other things again with the pushing for the endless um high skilled labor low skilled labor um the farm amnesty bill the green card giveaway to the indian contract labor uh, monopolizing our system you know that has support throughout the administration so this is where staying focused and having good personnel makes a difference in outcomes um we also have different court cases we're gonna um we're gonna get to that if we have time not today then tomorrow the sanctuary city ruling finally 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 after every single district and appellate court created a insane right for states to violate what is clearly a federal power, what the Supreme Court has said is a federal power, and then also simultaneously demand a right to federal grant funding that was specifically designed for cooperation with law enforcement and statute specifically gives the attorney general the right to make you know, basic conditions, common sense conditions on it. Uh, finally, we have one panel of the Second Circuit, which is typically usually pretty bad, but we got a good panel, including a Clinton appointee. It was unanimous. So like, no, I mean, this is this is bogus. There's no such right. And it was a, it was a good opinion. Now, I have my suspicions on Gorsuch that he might join the four leftists to reverse this. But we'll we'll find that out when this uh, inevitably gets appealed by the those states like like New York to the Supreme Court. But anyway, there's there's a lot going on. But I want to talk about deterrent for a moment. Deterrent. Mark Corian has a tweet thread. It's not an article, but he put this out on Twitter. A new report um, from the Center for Migration Studies. And it's it's a left-wing think tank, but they have some interesting information there. And they find that 10.6 million illegals are known in the country in in 2018 again that number the you know the former dhs secretary nielsen already said it's more like you know 15 16 um but they claim that the total legal um population is lower people dying people leaving whatever now here's a key point key point Mark points out, if we actually enforced the law and made getting caught a real possibility for non-criminal illegals and made it harder for them to get a job, fewer would come illegally and the number going home on their own each year would be even higher. That's his point. His point is, you do find a lot of illegals did go home. Now, a lot of new ones did come. And what he found, just digging through this report, is that among the illegals who came here between 2010 and 2018, now just keep in mind, from 2018 on, those 18 months or so, it will be really skewed by the border crisis. It's going to go back the other way. But for those eight years, putting the border crisis aside, they claim that 66% were visa overstays, only 34% border infiltration. And again, I mean, this is where e verify exit entry tracking, and the need to make uh, overstaying your visa a felony, which is not at present, is so important. It's so, so important. 
We have not achieved 150,000 interior deportations since Obama's, since I think really 2012. Interior enforcement is in the toilet. This is the problem. See, if you think about it, crossing the border, we don't know what the interdiction rate is. Let's say it's 50, 60, maybe even 70%. Who knows? But you know you might get caught. Now, nothing really happens to you, but you, you know you might get caught. If you overstay your visa and you don't commit a crime, now, if you, even if you do commit a crime, there's millions of criminal aliens that remain in the country even after they're targeted by ICE, and that's a, we talk about that every day. But certainly if you don't, there's no deterrent against overstaying your visa. And where we have so, so, so many labor and student visas, in addition to certainly the standard tourist visas you're always going to give out, that's a huge problem. There's no deterrent. This is where deterrent is so important. I love it how the same people who want illegal immigration and they extol the virtues of illegal immigrants, then on the other end they say, it's not going to work. You can't. It's too hard. You're not going to stop it. Well, do you not want to stop it or we're not able to? Which one is it? On the one hand, you say they're good, which sounds like you don't want to. And that's the real answer. They don't want to because it's obvious if you made it that the laws are their laws, that being illegal means you're illegal, meaning you're not allowed to work. You don't get benefits. You're not allowed to have anything. You're treated like a fugitive. You can't get driver's licenses. Guess what? They'll go home. And that's kind of what he was trying to show that anyway, some of them were going home. Whereas under the current system, where the courts and pr previous executive branches uh, overturn statute and just bastardize it, the opposite is true. They mandate it between the state and the sanctuary states, previous administrations, the courts. It's like they criminalize enforcement and make heroes out of the illegal aliens. So, I mean, there's a huge need to clamp down on visa overstays. One other imp important point um, Jessica Vaughn made and Mark and Jessica were saying, and I think they're right. What is an illegal alien and what's a legal immigrant? That is, that is a very murky line. Particularly those from Mexico, Central America, and several other countries. Where their main way of coming here is illegally. See, other places, you know, you could bet that almost everyone who's designated as an immigrant came here initially legally. But as I noted, so many of these people lied to us and finagled their way into status. They have all these loopholes that were created by the courts and by previous administrations that A, we don't clamp down on visa overstays. And then even if eventually if we try to, they had already found a way to get themselves a green card. And now, now there's nothing we can do to them. And they estimate that roughly 20% of our green card intake every year. So we hand out about 1.1 million. They estimate that you know over 200,000 of those are really illegal immigrants. So that's another reason the number goes down. It's kind of a, a drain. But these people are not legal like you know your typical legal immigrant comes here. I can't tell you how many times I've seen these criminal cases where you have two people, same demographics, Salvadorans, 20-year-old, 
clearly came in around the same time. This just happened to two people arrested for raping 11-year-olds in Montgomery County that we talked about. One of them, there's a ICE detainer on. One of them, there's not. And that's all they could tell me. They can't tell me why not, or he has this status or that. They're not going to tell me that. But what's clear to me is I'll bet you anything that the guy didn't come like, you know, like a typical, I don't know, Korean immigrant or something where clearly they came legally. I mean, those people, if it's Salvadoran, likely did come from the border, not visa overstay even, and just finagled themselves into some sort of status, either through the UAC program or whatever. Maybe he wound up getting DACA. And that's that's the deal here. That is the deal. Deterrent is everything. And I just want to end this discussion with this tragic note. We talk a lot about Billy Chemimer. Um, it came out now that they are now investigating a thousand suspicious murders of senior citizens. So this guy is already, he's criminally charged in 14. He's implicated between the civil lawsuits in 22 cases, 22 murders. And But but the point is now all these people, because you could imagine they're in their 80s. A lot of them were in their 90s. They suddenly die. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of common. That happens often. People die when they're 92, 93. It's not like there was a specific thing. They just they just expired and, and God took their soul and that's it. And no one thought twice of it. But now that they know this guy was going around smothering people with pillows, now they wonder. And now they're digging up, I mean, a thousand cases. This guy could turn out to be the most notorious mass murderer in American history. No one's talking about it. And this guy was a visa overstay. He was a visa overstay. And he, and he finagled himself into a green card with the marriage loophole by marrying a U.S. citizen which is against statute, it was created by the Obama administration. And now a dirtbag judge in Maryland actually said to Trump, you must do this. Men are we being taken advantage of. Terrible. Okay, so just in the remaining time, I have a lot of other crime and immigration stories, a lot of other interesting stories here. But um, just, just, just a couple of things. I uh, just want to go back to this anti-lynching bill. So one of the four Republicans to vote against it was Louis Gohmert. And Louis said, I'm just going to read the following. He said, lynching is one of the most heinous forms of murder. It obviously deserves to be treated as a capital crime. And those who directly participate in lynching should rightly be subjected to a harsh penalty. However, H.R. 35 makes conspiring to commit civil rights violations a federal crime without a proper nexus. Moreover, the maximum prison sentence allotted is the in the bill is 10 years. This is an outrageously low maximum sentence for such an odious crime. It almost trivializes such a heinous offense. Previous versions of H.R. 35 contain much stronger language than that of the bill we voted on today. A version of the bill released on January 3rd of this year stated that anyone who assembles with the intention of lynching or who causes death by lynching shall be Im imprisoned for any term of years or for life. So, um, you know, kudos to him. This is again, something you're not going to hear in the media. Oh, they're going to try to, you know, virtue, virtue, virtue signal here. Um, but yeah, I mean, his point was, I mean, a, it's very hard to, you know, justify federalizing it, but if you're going to virtue signal over that, then at least make it, I mean, 
see, see, this is this is the this is what liberalism is all about. It's like, hey, let's give it some sort of like virtue signaling status of a federal hate crimes. Oh, and let's give the guy three minutes in jail. That 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 perfectly encapsulates liberalism. It's like, you know, let, let, let's go crazy over being a racist, but then let out a murderer, including a murderer who's a racist. I mean, it's just it's just stupid. But again, it's this jailbreak mentality that's behind everything at CPAC. Just seeing, you know, across my Twitter timeline, Mike Lee is talking right now. A government big enough to give you anything is a government big enough to take anything away from you. Yeah, gee, Mike, um, you know, uh, a new entitlement, Ivanka Care? Hmm, yeah, sounds familiar, Mike. And yeah, government's big enough to take anything away from you using the boot of Indian immigration to basically gerrymander every American out of an enormous amount of white collar fields. Yeah, real, real nice. Like, th this is what CPAC's all about. It's like, look, we, we can't allow socialism. Th this is going to be the theme. It's going to be the theme all year with Bernie. We can't allow socialism. And as I've been noting, Yes, there's a huge opportunity to define what socialism is, what freedom is, and, and push it. Instead, like, I mean, this is what I want to know. Please t t correct me if I'm wrong. What is the difference between Mike Lee and Bernie Sanders on crime? I, I want to know what the difference is. What is the difference between the CPAC organizers and Bernie Sanders on crime? I don't know. Foreign labor. But I want to I want to touch on one more story before we sew it up. We have so much more we left on the table. We'll hopefully get to tomorrow. Where basically I was reminded of this when I saw in my Twitter timeline. What's her name spoke this morning? Cheney, Liz Cheney. Oh, she's the new up and coming star. She's the chair of the House Republican Conference. Um, big spokesman, and she was like, thank our military defends freedom overseas. Now, certainly, I don't want to trivialize the military, but what she means something very different than you and I mean when we say that. She believes we need to throw our soldiers into meat grinders so then we could then lobby, and she does, to bring in endless migrants from both sides to endanger our homeland, so we have to fight them there so they don't come here, but then we fight both sides together that don't affect us, so we can bring them here. Okay. Military Times yesterday reminds me of this. Navy resumes flight training for Saudi troops after Pensacola terror attack. Service members from Saudi Arabia are back to conducting flight training in the U.S. nearly three months after it was halted following a fatal terror attack on a Florida military base. Saudi international military students resumed flight training Tuesday, Navy officials announced. The move follows a host of new restrictions placed on foreign troops, limiting their access to Navy and Marine Corps bases and banning them from having personal firearms while they're in the U.S. Notice how they're like the fool, the idiot, who, when someone points to the moon, they look at the finger, not the moon. I mean, I'm, I'm not into, I, I kind of agree, I, I don't want them to have guns, but the gun is not the point. The Sharia is the point. So, hey, let's go uh, bring in um, uh, 75,000 Afghani SIAs let's, and have them train with us. Let's go bring in Saudis. Let's go bring in 150,000 foreign students from these places, 160,000 green cards for these places. 
but uh, don't own a gun. Gee, I mean, who needs liberals? Again, I mean, the Trump response to Pensacola goes down to me as one of the most disgraceful, counterintuitive things to Trump's campaign promises that I've ever seen, both on the disarming soldiers on bases and on the lack of shutting off Middle Eastern immigration until we know what the hell is going on, as Trump promised. We're not even shutting off the Saudi training, which is the very program that engendered this attack on our bases. And again, it's like, here's what frustrates me. I'm not trying to reinvent Trump on what he didn't promise on, right? There's a couple of things he always pushed that wasn't conservative. I get it. I understand. I'm willing to take a compromise. I'm willing to deal with things I disagree with to get a lot of things I agree with. But I'm talking about things that he intuitively agrees with us with. And everyone's like, yes, elect Trump, drain the swamp. And then the swamp is all there and gets to him. And then he brings in Jared, who brings in even more swamp. He yells about the Cokes, and then his entire ledge policy shop is exclusively staffed with them. Complains that the generals rightfully, he says, are reduced to rubble, but then elevates all of them, some of them to civilian uh, political positions. And then, you know, they all sway him. And then everyone's like, Daniel, are you criticizing Trump? Are you not with Trump? Well, no, you're, you're freaking with the swamp. I don't know what Trump is or isn't, but I'm with what he campaigned on. It just it's so sad. It doesn't have to be this way. But again, this is your political Narcan from the political fentanyl that some of you are going to be experiencing at CPAC. For my end, no thank you. You know, if anyone is uh, looking to go to CPAC, tell them to Listen to this show. Send it to 50 of your friends, relatives, neighbors. We are working to put together a Facebook fan page so you guys could network together and raise awareness of so many so many of these vital issues. Until next time, God bless you all. Stay vigilant. Thank you for listening.